0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann. This episode is a guest interview from my friend Drew Grimm of the Schoolhouse Life Podcast, as he sits down with Andrew Magazine to discuss the art and craft of whole animal butchery, as it applies to the homestead. Throughout, Andrew shares tips from his professional experience as a craft butcher, when setting up one's workspace, how to select the right tools and equipment for this work, and how raising and butchering our own animals is an act of care, compassion, and an ethical way to include meat in our diet. Enjoy this conversation with Andrew and Drew, and I'll join you again after.
1: We've got Andrew Magazine with us, artisan, butcher, previous dancer. You're still not dancing, are you? I dance every day. Still a dancer. And amazing guy, just getting to know him, but I'm super excited to talk to him more and let you guys learn more about artisan and butchery, how you can do it on the homestead, how you can connect with someone like Andrew and learn even more about butchery so andrew let's uh dig in give us a little bit of history so i mean obviously uh, i feel like you like to talk about the transition from dance to butchery like give us a like
2: quick intro on that to start with sure i often get from people what an uncommon transition and you know it's not it's muscles and bones are all kind of the same thing my degree in dance is anatomy based yeah My fascination with anatomy is why they do, why muscles and bones do what they do. And so, you know, I had been dancing in New York in my early twenties and looking around at the people I I looked up to and looked at their life. And, you know, I, I wanted more. And so I knew I needed to get out to the land. It's time to leave New York City. So I started looking for hard skills. You know, I bounced around quite a bit and found myself in kitchens for a brief while, but then found an apprenticeship in whole animal butchery under Brian Mayer, who I just think is a wonderful man. He's doing great things in Maui right now. And learned very quickly that I already knew how to break down an animal. I just didn't know where to cut. Looking at a, a pig carcass for the first time and understanding that a tenderloin is a psoas was very easy for me. A psoas um, is a muscle? Yep, <laughs> it's an erector muscle. It's, the psoas major is a short muscle deep in your abdominal group that is responsible for connecting your pelvis to your spine and for keeping us standing upright but we're two-legged creatures and we stand up straight. Thus we use those internal stabilizing muscles a lot. When you look at a pig or a cow or a lamb, they have a greater and wider support system to distribute their weight. And so they don't use those internal stabilizers as much and therefore it's delicious and tender and very neutral in flavor. It doesn't have a lot of activity during the animal's life. But as you see, this is how I like to think about muscles. That is interesting.
1: Yeah, and my daughter has 15, 16 years of history in ballet. And I was like, Naomi, I think you'd really like this guy. It's almost like a dance that you're doing with the butchery. Do you find yourself like moving in a certain way when you're like presenting and that
2: kind of thing? Totally. When I found my apprenticeship under Brian in Brooklyn, the workload was intense. It was three months of just hardcore whole animal breakdowns. Like the first time I learned how to break down a pig, I did eight pigs in that day. Wow. In a uh, day? In a day or something Whoa. like that, you know, yeah. it was a while ago. But I quickly learned that I was going to have to figure out the ergonomics of making it through these work days. It's very, very big pieces of material and it's pretty hard labor and sometimes really dangerous. And so you've yeah. gotta, you got to, you got to figure out where you're going to be at all times and how you're going to manage your energy throughout the day. And so I often look like, they say I look like I'm dancing. I'm always dancing when I'm butchering (laughs) because I want to make it through my career and I want to use my entire body to get there.
1: That's an interesting thought because I mean, so the most I've done is 300 chickens in a day and that was with a group of people. But by the end of that day, I mean, you're just worn out. You know, like I feel like I could do a couple of sheep a day, but as I've progressed, being aware of like how you set up your system, like maybe you can talk more about that, like the things to be aware of so that you
2: can save your body. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is don't work on a table that's not appropriate for yourself. You don't want to be hunched over. You don't want to be on your toes. Get the table to a height that you need. And as homesteaders, we have stuff lying around. You know, grab a cinder block, get that table higher. Or if you're doing your own processing, I mean, or your own butchering, make the table you need out of the stuff that you have so that you're not putting yourself through extra work just to get to your workstation.
1: I recently skinned out a calf that we had to put down just laying on the ground because I didn't have a winch at the time. It was surprising how much more painful that is to skin on the ground versus hanging
2: it. A chain hoist is a fine butcher's best friend. Absolutely. I will change the height of the animal while I'm working, while I'm skinning. I'll just keep pulling it up higher so that really I never have to go beyond my physical limits.
1: Oh, that's a genius idea. So I don't do that, but now I'm going to. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I used to say find a place to hang your animals that like where they can be very, very high when you need them to be.
1: Yeah, so uh, I have like a old school, like deer triangle. What is that called? A gambrel? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got an old school one yeah. of those that I hang in the barn, but it it only like, I guess the head is usually about waist high. So it would be like, when you were saying that, it's like, that would be amazing to have it up I do mine
2: off my second story porch when I do my own animal. There's one more, which sharp knives. You can cut your day in half. You can cut (laughs) your day in half. you (laughs) Uh, You can cut your day in half with sharp knives. I mean, with a dull knife, you're working a lot harder and a lot slower and a lot messier and either finding someone who can sharpen your knives or getting yourself An oil stone, which I think are I advocate for, they're the best and most straightforward to use. And really practicing that skill will make your day easier. Get your days easier, your weeks easier, your years easier. Blah blah blah. Right. All right. So talk to us about like I see knives
1: in like three categories. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but you've got like your disposable ones, kind of like those white handled ones that I feel like you use them and then they're kind of shot. I have these ones that like you can switch out the blades. They're like scalpels basically, and they snap in and snap out. And then I know like single bevel and double bevel. And I've heard people say
2: single bevel is the best. What is your thought on all that? I'll go backwards. A double bevel, is your regular knife, right? Like your kitchen knife. It has two edges that meet at a point. That's the easiest and and most accessible to sharpen. It's the most accessible to use. I advocate for those on any knife. Single bevels are cool if you're really excited about spending a lot of time on the craft of butchery. And I really look up to some people who are very excited about single bevel edges. It's not really my thing. I beat the hell out of my knives and I don't really want to be that finicky about sharpening them because I'd rather get going. If you're a nice person, explore the options, but if for you know your regular homesteader, you're all right with a double beveled edge. Then I've never heard of this scalpel thing. <laughs> Sounds yeah. like an X-Acto blade. Kind blade. It basically is. Yeah. I love it because when it gets dull, I just pop it out and pop a new one in and you just keep going. It, It sounds like a a useful tool. I would use that for, you know, opening the skin to start that process, just because that can really get your knives. And then what you call single use knives are not (laughs) single use knives. (laughs) You can sharpen those. (laughs) I
1: just feel like they never sharpen again. Like, like the, when you get them out of the package, but that could be my skill level at sharpening. No,
2: well. There is nothing like a factory edge. I was just hanging out with a bunch of butchers the other day and I got a brand new Victorinox breaking knife, which I will promote all the time. It's a great Uh knife. It's a great price point. When you sharpen it down to a toothpick, it's not that much to buy another one. And I just got a new one. Nothing's like a factory edge, Yeah, but it can come close. And the more you sharpen your edge, the more frequently you sharpen your edge in relation to when you bought it, the closer you will stay to your factory edge. So are Um, you sharpening as you butcher or like before and after? I sharpen every time I start, like at the beginning of every workday. But I hone my knife three times a minute. And the difference between honing and sharpening, I could talk about this for a very long time, so I'll try to keep that brief. But
1: Go into it. I mean, I feel like this is like, I think you're right that a lot of butchery, like, it can be a miserable experience with a dull knife. So like yeah. I think I think it's
2: very important to like know what you're doing with this part. So a couple of companies make this oil stone, tri stone. It's got coarse, medium, and fine are the edges. Use mineral oil. You can use other light oils, but it does tend to clog the pores of the stone. And things like vegetable oil can go a little rancid. Mineral oil tends to not. So I will sharpen my knives on a tri stone at the beginning of every workday, which removes the frayed edges or the rounded edges from the knife and creates a new sharper edge. So you're actually removing metal from the knife, which is why over time you see butcher's knives get thinner and thinner and thinner until they're working with a toothpick. And honing your knife, which is when you take a steel, either a diamond steel or a steel, steel, and you sort of drag your knife across it, back and forth on either side. And that takes the frayed pieces of metal along the edge of your knife and puts them back into place where the edge that you previously set was. Eventually, those edges won't really do that that well anymore. They'll either break off or, I mean, yeah, the frayed edges, they won't hone that well and you're left with a dull knife. And so if you're butchering whole animals or if you're butchering Really anything where you encounter bone repeatedly, you're gonna want to sharpen your knives the next day in order to stay at a very sharp place without having to completely reset your knives. That being said, if you do have knives that need resetting, there are plenty of people out there who are very good at my I was gonna say my local farmer's market, and then I realized I think almost every local farmers market in everywhere I've ever lived has had a guy with a grindstone. Oh really? <laughs> We have one in Nashville and you can bring your knives there and maybe a dollar or 50 cents an inch or something like that. Or maybe even a dollar a knife. Yeah. Uh, great. I grew up in Manhattan with this old guy at a truck and he had a big grindstone in the back of the truck and he'd ring a bell and then you'd start calling all your neighbors and we'd all run downstairs with like a drawer from the kitchen full of every <laughs> knife we could find and we'd all wait in line on the corner and he'd sharpen all our knives. So so it can be done if you need to reset your knives, but those are not disposable just because they're $20. All right.
1: Guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I think the next question, when you get to like maybe a past sheep, when you get to like, I don't butcher hogs, but cows, like a lot of people say you can't do it at home. You can't do it on the homestead at that scale, like that scale of an animal. And one of the big things I hear people argue with is like, you have to have like a bandsaw or you can't butcher the animal. And I know recently I saw on Instagram, you posted a picture of no bandsaw. And I was like, man, I love this guy more every time he posts something. So talk to us a little bit about that. I'd love to.
2: First of all, bandsaw is a very expensive piece of equipment. We moved to our homestead, which has seven acres of pasture, and they told us we couldn't manage it without a bush hog. So we've got a cow. I'm a one tool kind of person. I do all of my butchering with an eight inch breaking knife and a single saw, and maybe a cleaver. It would be great to have a bandsaw. It would be great to have a personal assistant. Too. <laughs> yeah so if it can be done without electricity chances are it was done before electricity came and i will say once you have an in-depth understanding of where the primals or the cuts that you're looking for are situated while looking at a whole carcass it becomes intuitive on where to separate those things that education can be hard to come by but it's there i mean it's out there in the world and it's in your communities if you're a homesteader. If one person needs it done, everybody lends a hand. You all learn, you know, make an education right. club do each other's animals together. But you do not need power tools. I've seen all sorts of stuff go down. People use um, a Sawzall. I would rather use a handsaw and work a little harder than have a Sawzall flying around in my face.
1: Years ago, I've used a Sawzall and I've always regretted it because that Sawzall like, still has chunks of meat in it. It just clogs it up
2: are not particularly food safe. Uh, yeah, I've seen other people do it. Their bones are cut and they have yellow paint on their bones. You know, they got their marrow, but it's a yellow right. flavor. <laughs> is DeWalt flavored? <laughs> right. <laughs> but a bone saw, a handsaw is an old tool and it's great. Obviously, I'm sure there is, but is
1: there like a, a good quality level that you would like for your average, you know, doing a few animals a year, like what style
2: or I would say this for all equipment, pretty much, is shop for the largest you're going to need. Okay. You know, get a giant gambrel. If you think you're gonna do it, if you think you're gonna do beef and you have sheep and you know you're gonna do the sheep first, get the one that can handle the beef. You can always thread some S-hooks, connect S-hooks down and make it smaller. There are ways to get creative, but we are homesteaders and we can't buy every size of everything. Buy it once and buy the one that will serve the most of your needs. I answered you about a gambrel, but that's not what you asked about. No, that that's good. I mean, uh, the question was like a bone saw, but I mean... The, oh, they, I use a long one. I use a 25-inch a one, and they come in a couple of sizes, but I break down lamb with that. And sometimes it's difficult because it's large, but it's never prevented me from doing anything. And I have been prevented from making cuts because the saw has been too small before. Gotcha. got you. Okay. And 25 would do a beef also. Yeah. Get through that. Yeah. Yeah. I have gotten through them. So that, uh, I will yeah. also say big cleavers. I, You know, I don't have that much experience with them, but two-handed cleavers are Two really beautiful. Areas. Yeah, they exist to split animals, hog splitting traditionally, most traditionally. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, and gra- letting gravity and a sharp edge split it will work. Yeah. We've been doing it for years before electricity. We don't need generators.
1: I like that idea for sure. Okay. So since we're into splitting up meat, what about non-traditional cuts of meat? If we're going to categorize homesteaders, most of us have bigger families. And when you get into a bigger family, all of a sudden, like your single steaks or your four steaks, like that doesn't feed my family. I have to fight the kids away from the steaks if I even want to bite a steak. So what what are some like maybe not more non-traditional ways to break up an animal in in a way that you can describe
2: every podcast? Obviously, I feel like a lot of that's visual, but yeah, talk to I me. Mean, about the first that. thing that comes to mind is roast beef. I know that's a very broad answer. It's how my family has eaten for generations. Get a roast beef. There are infinite ways to break down a cow, right. and you can get quite a number of large, beautiful relatively tender pieces of beef. Cook a giant roast at the beginning of the week, a dry roast. Cook it pretty rare and slice off it all. You can have it for sandwiches. Slice off it and throw it on a pan and have it for fajitas. You know, cook something big. Keep the animal big. If you eat big, keep the animal big. And if you don't want to keep pulling things out of your freezer all the time, cook once and make it last. Yeah. What would be the cut of a dry beef? The thing I'm thinking of right now is either an eye of round, which most people don't know what to do with. And so it ends up going into the grind, but it makes a really nice roast beef But often has a fat cap that's really lovely on it. And also a top round. Most of the rear of the steer is really suitable for this kind of thing.
1: I think the other one that I was surprised was like it was like the front shank. I know a lot of people like will just cut the meat off that and grind
2: it. I'm cooking that for Passover tomorrow night. Are you <laughs> okay? So yeah. I'm, it's braising right now in my yeah. kitchen. Yeah. So traditionally, ossobuco is yeah. what people call beef shank, but ossobuco historically is a Milanese idea from Milan, or really from Tuscany, because it was born out of the veal industry there, which exists to supplement the Parmesan industry. And so ossobucco is traditionally only veal. We don't do that in the American retail market, but often at homesteader, as homesteaders, we cull our animals for many reasons. So I will say, if you end up culling and have a veal on your hands, save those shanks and go get a translated Italian recipe for Asabuco Yeah. and do it exactly like that just to say you did it. That being said, you can make braised beef shanks out of the four shanks, the hind shanks. doesn't really matter. Some people even prefer the four shanks because there's more bone.
1: Traditionally, like Osobuco, you're cutting it like into almost like
2: strips, right? It's like a, this a cross cut. So yeah. you take the whole shank, you lay it on the table, get a friend or some vice grips, I'm not joking. (laughs) And you just clamp it down to the table. Make cuts with your knife. Anytime you saw, score it with your knife first so that you're not sawing through protein and fraying the fibers of the protein. But score it where you think you want it and then make the cuts accordingly using a saw, little tricks, keeping the teeth of the saw pointed away from you and pushing when you saw. And it's not a force game. No matter how hard you push on that saw, if it's stuck, it's stuck. You'd lift it up a little bit and let it go back and forth. Those teeth are sharp. Let the tools do their work.
1: Let the saw do their work.
2: (laughs) These shanks are it, though.
1: Yeah,
2: I know. Shanks are my favorite on any animal.
1: I've never done it with
2: sheep. Have you? You do sheep shanks, too? Lamb shanks. Lamb shanks, yeah. I mean, sheep shanks would be great. Some people find mutton or sheep to be a little too sheepy. You know, it can taste like the live animal smells, is how I would say that. Right. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> some people do. Right. But yeah, lamb shanks are, are, I'm also making lamb shanks for Passover. Yeah. I'm doing a
1: rear leg cooked on a tripod over the fire. I'm trying that. Never done it before, but hey, what better time than Passover to go to a try, right? The other thing that we dove into, and I feel like it's a little bit of a sacred cow, maybe pun intended. Let's talk about aging, dry aging, because I know you're kind of passionate about this. And we like like to poke at all the uh, sacred cows here. So what's your opinion? Dry aging, is it worth it or is it not worth it?
2: No, I fervently believe the dry aging is a very cool hobby, but it certainly does not serve the purposes that it is advertised as serving well enough to really make that much of a difference. If your beef is tender when it goes in to the dry aging, it's tender when it's coming out. And chances are, if you've never not dry aged your beef and it's living on a homestead, it's not gonna be tough and terrible. Even if it's grass finished, which I hear a lot in the industry, people will say, but we have to dry age it, it's finished on grass. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be tougher. Mm-hmm. And that's first and foremost. Second of all, we put a lot into our animals when we're raising them. right? And uh, time and resources. And every time we make a part of that animal or we render a part of that animal inedible, we're hitting a loss as homestead. And so on average, when you dress the animal from slaughter to carcass, you lose about a third of the weight of the animal. And, And this is pretty much true across the board for most animals, vaguely. From that point, they say about a third of the animal Carcass is bone, okay, which humans don't eat, right? Right. So then we're only left with some fraction that is similar. <laughs> I think we're, uh, we're at a third then essentially of the animal, right? Well, kind of, we're at two thirds of two thirds. Whatever that is, I'm uh, not a So if you're then dry aging the entire animal or even just a piece of the animal for another month, What dry aging is is controlled rot, so you are inviting bacteria in purposefully to create a biome on the outside of the protein, which then acts as a bark, they say, to enzymatically tenderize the inside. That's the the logic behind dry aging. But then you have to cut all that off and throw it away. You can mix some elements of it into your, your grind if you really want to, but you really can't go that far for the average human biome. If you're very funkified inside, as some homesteaders are, who knows? <laughs> but I won't recommend eating that. And then you're left with smaller cuts and there's external cuts on all animals. Like on beef, there's a cut called the Matambra, which I think is a really cool and rare muscle to see in America, but in a lot of countries in South America, it's a pretty sought after thing. But we call, it's the fly swatter muscle, it's just subcutaneous, and its main purpose is to swat flies, and if you dry-age the animal, you cut the entire thing off. Is that right there at the tail? It's on top of the cervical spine, more or less. So lower back hip zone sort of okay. deal oh, near cool. the sirloin.
1: Like, I mean, I feel like there's just so much knowledge here. I could talk to you all day about this. What would you sum up as, like, for a homesteader that's, like, just got... A homestead. I get this question a lot from people. Is like, they're just starting to homestead. They want to butcher their own animals. Question number one is what animals would you start with? And then question number two is what perspective would you take when raising the animals as far as looking at butchery in mind? Do you suggest starting with small animals and working your way up? Or would you suggest if you hate chicken and you
2: love beef, would you just start at beef and figure it out as you go? Don't do anything you don't want to do, especially as a homesteader. You're supplying your life. Yeah. Uh, So do not design. Maybe chickens are easy to start with. I don't actually agree with that. (laughs) Really? Okay. Yeah. Chickens are a very specific thing. Bird processing and larger animal processing are, are very different games. There are similarities, but there are major anatomical differences between the animals and major processing differences. I would say if you're starting small and moving up in size is a good idea, but I would start goat or lamb and move up that way. I'd go from goat or lamb to pig to beef, if that's your thing. But principally, I would say smaller or larger is a good idea. I will also say go for it. You are not going to be great at it, nor was I the first time. My homestead is called Wonderland Hollow. We have a saying here where everything's right the third time. You build something, and then a goat destroys it, and then you fix it, and then a cow runs it down. And the third time, nobody touches it. For some reason, butchery is just really intimidating for
1: a lot of people. I see the slaughter element being something that people are not
2: necessarily... Go for it. Start it. You will progress at it. But also, humans are incredibly equipped emotionally. Mm -hmm. And we forget that. I forgot that. And that's a natural fear. Can I handle this? This is more of a blanket statement than I'm usually comfortable making, but you probably can handle it. And that's not saying buck up. That's saying you got this. We are incredibly equipped to grieve. We are incredibly equipped to compartmentalize. No death should be easy. We can help to make death more quick, more efficient, more painless, but it should not be easy. It's hard to lose life. It's hard to take life. And I really think that I would love to be see more support available around looking that one day in the eye. I personally rely on my community when I process my own animals because it's a lot. I love teaching people how to process their own animals because having been at a significant amount of slaughters and, Having dealt with a fair amount of death in my personal life, I feel very equipped to hold the space down. But so does, so is community. We have this innate response to pick up go time, you know? When the animal drops, humans know it's time to go. It's time to kick into action. Your adrenaline will start. There's work to be done. And you do it together and you make it through it. And then while the animal's cooling, overnight, a couple days, whatever you need, a week maybe, grieve. I mean, yeah. these are these are not feedlot animals. These are our, can be part of our family. I will not advocate for distancing completely from your animals. We touch our animals a lot. We snuggle with them. We make sure they're not afraid of our contact because on slaughter day, I can be there for them. And they walk up to me. They're not afraid of that captive bolt. They're not afraid of me when I have the captive bolt. They walk right up to me, snuggle, and they go down. And they don't know fear. And what the last day of our animals' lives look like, if we're processing them at home, is up to us. Yeah. We can quit. But we need each other.
1: That's so powerful. I, I feel like there, there is like an element... Every time we slaughter, I mean, even chickens, which I feel like it sounds tough, but I'm almost callous to chickens, but there's an element of like grief or an element of loss on the homestead when like after slaughter day. And I think it's, it's very important. Like you said to, and we do, we address the animal, we address the creator, we thank everybody for their lives you know, we pause and I feel like sometimes as a homesteader, and I became aware of this for ourselves, is we weren't pausing before the slaughter. We were going in there and killing the animal and moving on and instead of taking that moment. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge ritual or it can be a huge ritual, but taking that time to pause before and then after, like you said, is, is powerful. And I think that connecting with that, connecting with our ancestral heritage of that is important. You know,
2: there's. The hunt and the, the slaughter, yeah. The animals give us the chance to experience their gratitude as we integrate them into our traditions. As we continue to eat them, it's not, you know, maybe except for chickens, they feed us for more than one meal. They continually feed us. And these are animals that can't look us in the eye and say thank you. They're not animals like our dogs who will show us their gratitude at home and bring us funny little treats. Or This is how they say thank you. We get to eat and just really appreciate that. You know, We continually grieve. I'm very aware of who's at my table and who's on my table. Let me talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because my my children are very okay with it. Except for my oldest, they've all grown up on the homestead. My mother-in-law grew up on a farm, but... Almost refuses to eat any meat off of our homestead. It grosses her out for some reason. It's just an interesting thing. But she grew up like on a traditional
2: dairy versus a homestead. So I don't know. I think for some people, dissociation has become such a defense around this that they just need to hold on really tight to that or have gotten too far down that hole. And that's acceptable. You know, I'm not in this world to try to change anybody's mind. I'm here to live the model that i believe in and maybe if if they see the light in it it'll affect them but i'm not trying to do that i'm trying to put my head down and work yeah
1: i always say that like vegans i'll get in discussions with and i I always say that if a vegans would stop being angry for a little bit they would find out that we actually have a lot in common there's just a very small bit at the end that's not in
2: common we talk about this as butchers in the industry a lot, whole animal butchers, craft butchers. Oh, and by the way, that's the difference, artisan butcher. We call it craft butchery in the industry, but craft butchers, we break down whole animals. We talk about in the industry a lot that vegetarians and vegans and animal rights activists and craft butchers are all on the same side. I got into homesteading and raising my animals to eat through being a craft butcher in retail in New York and in Nashville. And I'm an animal person instinctively, and I was a vegetarian as a child. I did not understand how you could put a piece of an animal on a plate and call it food. But I grew up in a farm building in New York City, very far removed from seeing the life of animals. And I think factory farming is up there with one of the worst atrocities humans have ever designed. For sure. And for sure. I'm not the bad guy. Those of us who have our own animals, those of us who help small farms, small commercial farms, make it to the retail market. We're not the bad guys here, and we're not cruel. I just talked to one of my best friend's mother about this, because she is a vegetarian, but will feed her grandchildren, Purdue, chicken nuggets. And then we just got new lambs on the farm and sent her a photograph, and she said, please be kind and don't kill them. And I sent her a phone. Then the kids asked me to say something to her. And the kids said, you know, we know what we're doing. I was amazed, this 10-year-old. said, we know what we're doing, and that makes it really hard for us. And I said, listen, I'm not asking you to change your mind. But respect what we do here. Right. We're not the bad guys. We have kindness. Please see us. This is what I wish I could get to with the vegans. Yeah. Please see us for the love that we have for our animals. When our first animal died on the homestead, I was a wreck. Yeah. And So many people from back in the cities would say to me, thinking it was consolatory, well, this is what you signed up for, like, this is what's coming, and you're going to get used to this. And those words burned every time, that whole sentiment of, like, get used to it, or you signed up for this. And I went and I told my neighbors at this farm stand, and I got a hug from four angles, and I started to finally cry. But please don't tell us that we're unkind, because we care a lot about the last day of their lives, because we're butchers. Yeah. or their afterlife, because we care about making sure that they feed people. And plus, what's the alternative? We let all these breeds that we engineered into the world die out and dig holes for all of them? Yeah.
1: Well, and you look at like what nature does if a wolf takes down a cow, it's way worse than what we can
2: hopefully give the cow as far as a death. Problem. I like that example very, very much. Um, And I invite the vegetarians and the vegans who are interested to see and learn about compassionate processing and ethical meat eating to come to any of my classes. I teach classes in butchery and breakdowns and slaughter and all sorts of things about animal processing. And I would love to teach vegetarians about what it is that we do.
1: So speaking of that, where can people connect with you? What's the... Best ways to get in touch. Sure.
2: My Instagram is Applied Anatomist, A P P L I E D A N A T O M I S T. That's usually where I have the most current class announcements. Additionally, I've got a, a website, www.appliedanatomist.com, and you can sign up for my mailing list there. And I have an events page with all of my upcoming events there, or shoot me an email at at appliedanatomist.gmail.com, and if you want to pick my brain about anything meaty, let's make a time to chat.
1: And you do workshops on breaking down all sorts of animals, right? I mean, they can come out to the farm and
2: see it, like, hands-on, step-by-step. Absolutely. You can come out, see it step-by-step, touch it, feel it if you want, ask me questions. Absolutely. You'll see how a whole animal becomes dinner. Or lunch.
1: It's like the new version of YouTube. It's called Real Life, where you get out right.
2: there. And- <laughs> <laughs> Come out and see me. Come see the homestead. I have a sausage-making class coming up in a couple weeks, oh, me. You know, if I can get my hands on a piece of protein to play with, and I can teach about it, I'll do my best.
0: And that was Andrew Magazine. As he just shared all the ways to connect with him, I won't repeat them here, but to make getting in touch with him easier, I've included links to his butchery website, Instagram, and farm in the show notes. You can find my friend and the guest host of this episode, Drew Grimm, and more of his conversations about the skills and knowledge needed for homesteading on the Schoolhouse Life podcast. As Andrew shared, there are better ways to have meat than factory farms. Raising animals ourselves and giving them the best lives possible is part of that. So I appreciate that the conversation included caring for animals and raising them on a homestead can be a compassionate and ethical way of including them in our systems and when considering meat consumption. I also enjoyed all the little pieces of wisdom from Andrew's experiences as a butcher. That there's no need for power tools. That a small set of the right tools can meet our needs and get us through most jobs. That we can care for and keep our tools in great shape ourselves and when they are past our ability to do so, there is likely someone in our community who has the skills to return them to a maintainable condition, while acknowledging that there are times when we'll need to replace something that's beyond repair. I also see this advice as applying to our garden tools as well, so that we can select a tool that is the right size for our bodies and the job at hand, to learn how to sharpen our shovel, hoe, or shears, to care for the wooden handles before, during, and after the season. You can let me know more about that or continue this conversation about craft butchery by leaving a comment at the permaculturepodcast.com. or, if you prefer to reach me directly, visit the website and click on Contact to send me a direct message. While you're there, you can also explore the extensive archives of the show going all the way back to 2011. Until the next time, spend each day honing your crafts while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.